Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. So, maybe you saw during the Democrats' convention, the father of Captain Humayun Khan, 27-year-old, who died in a suicide bombing in 2004 in Iraq. Um, Mr. Khan, Kazir Khan, Humayun's father, questioned Donald Trump's understanding of the United States, understanding of the Constitution, and offered to held up a copy of the Constitution during the televised broadcast and offered to lend it to Mr. Trump. And uh, Donald Trump has responded. I'm just going through all of the papers here just, just before we went on the air. I keep reading about it more and more is developing here. Uh, Donald Trump has responded on ABC television to George Stephanopoulos. He said, I think I've made lots of sacrifices. I work very, very hard. And he said he raised millions for military veterans, and he wonders why uh, Mr. Khan would attack him on television in front of millions of people. He also wondered, and this is where a lot of the negative commentary about Donald Trump has come in, he wondered, he questioned why Mr. Khan or Mrs. Khan didn't speak. And Donald Trump said, quote, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say, you tell me. So let me read you a, a little bit about what is being said internationally. Excuse me, i got something going on in my throat. Um, this is what the Guardian newspaper in, uh, in the UK printed. And we'll go to your calls in, in just a minute. Got the computers not agreeing with me either. So the Guardian writes, the parents of a Muslim-American soldier killed in Iraq said on Sunday that Donald Trump was a, quote, black soul, end quote, unfit for the White House after he insulted them and suggested he'd made sacrifices for the U.S. comparable to their sons. Amid widespread astonishment at the conduct of the Republican presidential nominee, the family of the 27-year-old Army captain, Humayun Khan, who died in a suicide bombing in 2004, said Trump was morally deficient and incapable of empathy. Quote, he is totally unfit for the leadership of this beautiful country, end quote, said Kaiser Khan, Humayun's father. Khan also pleaded with Senator Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Paul Ryan, the Republican leaders in Congress, to denounce Trump's comments about his family and his attacks on Muslims. Neither McConnell nor Ryan has responded. Khan urged Trump's children to intervene and fix his character after Trump mocked Khan's wife and appeared to suggest she was blocked from paying tribute to her dead son at last week's Democratic National Convention because of her religion. His wife, Ghazala Khan, dismissed Trump's insinuation and reiterated that she had been too upset to talk after seeing a picture of her son displayed on the stage. What mother could, she asked in an article written for the Washington Post. Donald Trump has children whom he loves. Does he really need to wonder why I did not speak? She also rejected Trump's claim that employing people in his property company and overseeing the building of great structures amounted to a sacrifice for his country. The Khans were as roundly supported as Trump was condemned after the Republican nominee criticized Ghazala Khan for standing silently beside her husband while he delivered his moving speech about their son and Trump's attacks on Muslims to the Democratic gathering in Philadelphia Thursday evening. Quote, his wife, if you look at his wife, she was standing there, Trump told ABCs this week. Quote, she had nothing to say. She probably, maybe she wasn't allowed to have anything to say. You tell me, end quote. But plenty of people have written uh, that she was extremely quiet and it looked like she had nothing to say. Another quote from Trump. Um, Mr. Khan told CNN's State of the Union that Trump was, quote, totally incapable of empathy, adding, I would want his family to counsel him, teach him some empathy. He will be a better person, but he is a black soul. But Trump also faced criticism for, for his extraordinary remarks from Republicans. John Kasich, the Ohio governor and a former competitor for the presidential nomination, said on Twitter, there's only one way to talk about gold star parents with honor and respect, Captain Khan is a hero. Together we should pray for his family. Ignoring calls from some conservative commentators to cease hostilities with the Khans, Trump again insisted on having the final word on Sunday. Quote, I was viciously attacked by Mr. Khan at the Democratic Convention, he said on Twitter following their remarks. Am I not allowed to respond? So, there's Donald Trump, and there's another controversy and another issue surrounding the Republican nominee for president. 
And the Clintons are saying, and their vice presidential nominee, Tim Kaine, are saying that Donald Trump is unfit to be president of the United States. And yet polling shows that Donald Trump is either tied with Hillary Clinton or beating Hillary Clinton or not that far behind Hillary Clinton in the United States. So millions and millions and millions of Americans are supporting Donald Trump. So I have this question for you. And consider the comments that were made and what's been said over the last 24, 36 hours, which I just outlined for you. Is Donald Trump a racist appealing to white voters? That's been said. It's been written that Donald Trump is appealing to white voters. Is Trump a racist appealing to white voters in the U.S. and building his campaign on racism and fear? Or is Donald Trump nothing of the kind? Is Donald Trump a racist who is appealing to white voters and building his campaign on racism and fear, or is he nothing of the kind? He has lots of followers in this country, and any time I've said even the slightest thing that could be interpreted as being critical of Donald Trump, people jump down my throat. There's a strong populist movement. We saw it in Brexit, and I've been talking about it for years. It's now becoming very, very much empowered, where people are telling politicians, you will do what we say and not what you want. Donald Trump has really um, made strong use of this populist movement. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's take your calls and see where you stand, and we're going to begin with Tanya in Alberta. Hi, Tanya. Tanya, we have to get you into a better mobile phone zone. All we heard was little blips, techno blips. Fred is in Edmonton. Let's stick stick around in Alberta here. Fred, what do you say, sir? Hello, Fred. Hello. You talking to me? Well, I, I think I am. Are you Fred? Oh, no, I'm Tanya. Oh, it's all backed up here. It says Fred. Oh. oh. Well, talk to me. I'll, I'll talk I'm to talking me. to you, Tanya, and I okay, thank you yeah. for the call. Yeah, no, what I'm saying is I watched all this stuff with Trump and Hillary, and I don't know if uh, anybody is realizing what Trump is, but um, I'm, I'm just going to say uh, if he gets in, we got Hitler part two. And we got a problem. Hitler Part Two. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, I I really don't like when people make analogous statements to no, Nazism. No, I know, I know, dear. But you know, because he is a racist. I mean, look, he wants to uh, build walls and not, you know, and stuff everybody. How else. long have you felt this way from the beginning? Has the feeling, the emotion right, against uh, Trump been building in you? I, yeah, I've never liked him, even when he was on The Apprentice. He's got that, you know, attitude. Okay. Thank you for the call. Strong statements. 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. Many Canadians support Donald Trump. Well, is he a racist? Let's try for Fred in Edmonton. Hey, Fred. Hi. Good afternoon. Thanks yeah. for taking my call. Yes, sir. My pleasure. Go ahead, please. Um, if we're going to equivocate the loss of a son in Afghanistan, I think it was, and to ask someone uh, how they would feel. Well, naturally, in this case, uh, Trump building towers and things like that is not going to be in the same mode as someone that has built uh, towers and then lost the sun. It's uh, uh, one that cannot be put together, the the grief of losing a son, as it relates to uh, speaking in terms of Donald Trump as being a racist, and if you're white or if you're... Do you think he's a racist? Uh, Well, if we want to bring everything down to a racist, uh, we have to believe... Is he... Let me me put to you this way, and just give me an answer to this question, Fred. 
Is he targeting white voters with the intent of being elected by whites in the United States? Is Donald Trump specifically directing his campaign to whites? If he is, if the answer is yes, then you're saying he's a racist. Uh, I have to say that Donald Trump got Sharia real well here because it was brought down to the terms of racism. Just tell me what and, you think, Fred. Is he a racist? Uh, not in, in this particular case, uh, I don't think uh, Donald Trump was a racist, but we can go out on a tangent if we want to. All right, all right. Thank you very much. Um, I'm asking you the question. Now, I agree with Fred. You cannot equate the loss of a child, particularly loss of a child in war, with building buildings. You can't, but Donald Trump did. Donald Trump did. It doesn't matter whether you're a fan of Donald Trump's or not, he did. Is he a racist? That's the case that's being made. Certainly being made by, they're not saying it specifically, but they're talking around it by Clinton and Kane, and it's going to become more and more and more pointed in that direction, supported by mainstream media as you head toward November the 8th. But remember, Mr. Trump is the one who's making the statements. Claire is in Hamilton. Hi, Claire. Hi. So if he's a racist, at least he's not hiding it. Because let me tell you something. Most people in their heart of hearts are pissed off at what's going on in the world. And you want to call it racist or extreme or just a little bit nervous, whatever. The country's in the toilet. Does he say the best things at the best time, the best way? Maybe not. Is he arrogant? So what? You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. News out of Edmonton this week. The Police Association is uh, calling on uh, the chief, calling for an independent investigation. They had a survey of their members in the police association, and about 80% of the officers, that's the police officers in Edmonton, you ready for this? Report that they work in a culture of fear, 80%. Um, Almost 60% of the officers... Now, this survey was done by the police association, the police union. Almost 60% of them um, participated in this survey. And they found that almost 40% have been looking for jobs outside the police service in the last five years. A toxic, toxic environment. And the chief has said he's going to look into it. You've heard from uh, RCMP women on this program and recently about the issues that um, that they're dealing with and they're facing. And uh, firefighters, there are two firefighters on this program last weekend and the fire chief, the association president in Toronto yesterday, it continues and it will continue. Now, I'm a big admirer of police. Policing when it's done right. It's the only barrier between chaos and order. And these are the men and women who are dedicated to placing themselves between the chaos and maintaining the order. All right? That's what they do daily. When they strap on their, put on their uniforms and strap on their utility belts and put on their gun, they go out to protect us. Yeah, they piss us off when they're flashing lights when they give us a ticket for speeding. But we usually earn the ticket. But then there's the times when we're treated not fairly by the police officer who we're dealing with, and that upsets people. Now, what's happening inside the police's uh, organizations? We've heard the RCMP stories from women who've joined us here. More than 500 RCMP women are involved in class action lawsuits against the force claiming sexual harassment, abuse, and more, more than 500 in the class action. There are individual suits, lawsuits that are going on. Catherine Gallifer just settled hers. They basically said that Catherine Gallifer did that she had some mental health issues. That was a challenge, and they settled with her. She's on this program recently. No mental health issues with Catherine Gallifer. It was systemic with the RCMP, and the commissioner won't come on the show and talk about it. So, 
I've been in touch recently with Marlene Hope, who retired from the Calgary Police Service in August of last year as a detective. She was a sergeant before that. She's a 26-year veteran of the Calgary Police Service, 26 years of your life, invested in one organization, all right? So we've exchanged emails and we've talked. And today, for the first time anywhere, Marlene Hope joins us to talk about the Calgary Police Service and her experience there with the bullying, the intimidation, and the fear. Marlene, thank you for taking the time, and thank you for what you've done to, to protect your community and separate the chaos from, keep the chaos away from the rest of us. Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Also with us is Patricia Ferris. She's a psychologist in Calgary, has worked in the field of psychological harassment for 20 years, and she conducts training for organizations on respectful workplaces and consults with those faced with managing issues and complaints and treats people who are impacted, and bullying impacts people for an entire lifetime. We've heard it. We've heard it on this program. Thank you very much for joining us, Patricia. I appreciate it. Hi, Roy. Much appreciated to be on your show. Let's start with uh, with Marlene. You, why did you make the personal decision to go public and talk about the Calgary Police Service and its issues, its problems, as you interpret them? Why? Um, Roy, I think um, it started when I heard your um, shows with the RCMP members and members from the various fire departments. And I thought it was really important and necessary to show uh, solidarity and to show them that uh, not only do we support them, but uh, their stories resonate with many members within paramilitary, par- paramilitary organizations. And um, so I thought, you know what, we've, uh, we've been working behind the scenes with the Calgary Police Service over the last few years, and we don't feel that there has been a change um, as swiftly as we would like. And so the decision was to come forward and, and speak to you because you've uh, shown uh, a commitment to hear the voices of people and you've done it in a respectful manner. Thank you for that. Um, you say we, so there's more than you, but you're speaking on behalf of yourself today. Today, I, I definitely want to ensure that uh, your listeners understand that I am speaking for myself on my experiences and um but there are people beside me that have have concerns as well. You retired as a detective, uh, Marlena. As I said, prior to that, you were a sergeant in the Office of Inclusion. Why did you resign from the Calgary Police Service after 26 years? Uh, my, my story is a little bit long, and I know we have exchanged uh, dialogue regarding that. Um, I will speak in uh, some specifics, but I, I do want to ensure that people understand that... Uh, this is behind me, um, but there were instances within the police service where I experienced bullying by people within leadership, and uh, that began for me in 2009, uh, 2010, so after 20 years of service, and it ended, ultimately ended in 2015 when I felt that uh, the forces were against me and uh, for the sake of my health and that of my family, I chose to retire. Um. Is what is happening to the RCMP women, and they've talked to us about bullying, about systemic um, sexual harassment, mistreatment, uh, just a, a, f- a fearful organization, a fearful reality. That's what they've talked to us about. Is what these, what these RCMP women have said, and that's what I just, or officers and, and civilian employees, I call them RCMP women, uh, is what they and the firefighters uh, told us is going on. Is that also going on in the Calgary Police Service? I could answer yes to that, but again, I think that's the story of those members to speak to directly. Uh, when I worked in the Office of Inclusion, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, numerous members, both men and women, uh, and speak to them about their story of bullying and harassment. And so I do have full knowledge, direct knowledge, from them based on their perspective about what happened to them. And it mirrors very much that of the um, police members and firefighters. But again, this is not an issue um, separate to females. It's an, an, an issue that also uh, impacts greatly the, the men in the associations. 
All right. So it's not just it's not just women, as we've been finding finding out. It's male police officers who are also uh, talking about, and we're going to be talking to some of them coming up, who've been uh, talking about being bullied and otherwise mistreated. So um, supervisors in certain areas have been challenged as to their treatment of members, and I understand some have, have said. Do you know who I am? This is how we do it. And then there's fallout from those exchanges. Can you speak to that at all? You know, I, I will. And now that one is specific to me. Um, in 2009, I was a, a team sergeant uh, overseeing a team of 23 members, men and women. And I challenged a member as a fellow supervisor in regards to the treatment of uh, members within the district. Uh, his response to me was just that do you know who I know? And he was referencing at that time uh, the inspector of the district who I also worked for. So, uh, you know, I didn't take the the, the veil threat too seriously. Um, I was hoping that, you know, the right, right dialogue would occur and, and changes to behavior would happen. But what happened shortly thereafter is I became, uh, in my opinion, and I put forth a, com- a complaint to the association on that, that I became targeted by the the inspector of that area uh, and a number of uh, male supervisors and other supervisors in the area because I took the stand I did. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So let's go to this issue, Marlene, of you, you shared with me that the fear is so great among members that if they come forward and, and speak out, they could... Um, well, they could be isolated, ostracized, ridiculed, overlooked for promotion, assaulted, harassed. Members become sick, go on leave and resign, which impacts their health, their financial status, and their pensions. That is a huge statement. You know, it's a huge statement, and it's, and that one is made based on facts, based on statements and uh, interviews of members who were uh, spoken to um, by myself and uh, my partner in 2013-2014 when Chief Hansen requested an audit be done of the police culture. So they said to you, in your words, what are their greatest, what are their concerns? What are they worried about? What do they fear? These are officers. These are police officers, right? Um, The majority of them were sworn members and some were civilian members within the service. Okay. So again, tell us in your words, what are they scared of? All of the above that you mentioned, any time that uh, what we found was any time that there appeared to be a challenge, a question, um, a change in needs or desires for a member, if they brought those forth and it wasn't supported and they challenged it, uh, they they began to um, be um, ostracized, isolated, um, talked about, gossiped. Some members weren't backed up on the street. Uh, we had members who said that they had lost their families because we often get members who are very connected to the police scene service and so uh, that that group is important to them and so they really lost the ability to have a voice and to speak and to some were impacted by promotion like i said Um, they weren't promoted if they were seen to be um, speaking out against issues within the service all right. So these were these were true stories. These were by members who had, you know, some with two to three years, some up to 20, 25 years. Wow. Now, we're going to break in just a minute, but Marlene, let's go back to that audit that you talked about that you participated in. The Chief Hansen, Rick Hansen, conducted an audit in 2013. What was the audit about, and where are the results three years later? Uh, the audit was something that uh, Chief Hansen had requested based on uh, complaints that we had provided to him by the members of the service. And uh, he wanted to understand what was going on that would allow behavior by uh, people within the organization to go on, and not only go on, but often go unchallenged. And so the audit was done, and uh, it was then placed under privilege with a law firm here in Calgary. And to date, that's where it, it sits. Okay. There, there's a, there is a, or was, I don't know if it still exists, there was a Respect Matters program in the organization. Right. That, what, did, it, did it succeed? Did it fail? What, what's the story? 
uh, the, the Respect Matters program sort of came to a halt in 2010, from my recollection. Uh, we did speak to members involved in that program, and essentially what happened uh, from the stories that we were told was the um, members within even senior management of the organization conducted themselves um, with behavior that would be construed as bullying uh, towards members, and uh, they were removed. The mem- some members were removed from the area of human resource um, that oversaw the Respect Matters program, and other members quit, including civilian members. Wow, this is one of Canada. And, this is one of Canada's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. And you know, and, and uh, after. My story, which um, where I uh, resigned or attempted to resign in 20, 2011, Chief Henson did ask for a review of the Respect Matters program, and and I was working with that in uh, prior to the Office of Inclusion, and once I arrived there. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. With me, uh, Marlene Hope. If you're just joining us, uh, Marlene was a 26-year member of the Calgary Police Service. She was a sergeant. She retired as a detective last August. And she's talking to us about the dysfunctional, what she sees as the dysfunctional nature of the Calgary Police Service. And and one of the, again, just before the break, we talked about, about this. And, and I, I wrote these questions out for myself. I normally don't do that, write everything out. But I did for this conversation. You shared with me that the fear is so great for people who might come out and speak openly about the issues they're facing, that if those around you choose to, they will exert pressure that could result in a member being isolated, ostracized, ridiculed, overlooked for promotion, assaulted, harassed. Members become sick, go on leave, and resign. This impacts health, financial status, and pensions. Now, along with Marlene Hope, is Dr. Patricia Ferris, psychologist in Calgary, who's worked in the field of psychological harassment for 20 years. And I looked at the email that you sent me, Dr. Ferris. I hope our line's better this time. And you wrote, I view the, and you said what you heard, what we heard you say, what you heard from Marlene is fairly consistent with what you've heard from organizations elsewhere. And you see the police as paramilitary organizations, a word I've heard many times. You wrote, I view the exposure to various forms of harassment as an occupational injury and apply the hazard model to injuries can stem from exposure. Please explain that. Yes, I uh, see the exposure to workplace bullying as an occupational hazard. Um, the stress or, uh, is something that people will be exposed to in their work. May I just check and see if the uh, line is okay this time? Because I'm getting some feedback. No, you're fine. We hear you fine. Okay, good. Then I'll just carry on. Thank you. But it's like other exposures uh, to noxious substances. That There's a level at which it becomes very harmful to the person. So one of the most uh, damaging uh, exposures that a human being can have is exposure to rejection from a tribe or a group of people that is important to them. You know, recent uh, research is showing us that it likely has carried on pain neurons as an almost instinctual response, that if exposure is prolonged and severe, uh, really damages a person uh, beyond a stress response and often just results in a psychological death. So to me, one of the most important things that organizations need to understand is what the concept of bullying is and the impact on people. You know, there's a lot of recent research that shows that when exposed to ostracizing, rejecting, verbal abuse in the workplace, that that people develop symptoms consistent with post-traumatic stress disorder. And I find that organizations really struggle to understand this and often don't manage it well at the beginning leaving people the only option in their survival to leave the organization. Uh, And this often results in a chronic search for justice on their part, which leads to lawsuits and often public discussion as a way of... Which we're having uh, now. ...writing these perceived wrongs. Which we're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. Which we're doing right... You wrote as well, um, most people who are targeted for bullying are competent, conscientious and have a strong belief in a just world, they are often politically naive. Let me go back to um, Marlene Hope. Um, 
Marlene, my RCMP guests, and they want to be in touch with you, by the way, the, who, who've talked to us, the women in the RCMP, they've talked about physical um, assaults. They've talked about um, unwanted sexual comments. They talked about being exposed to that on a, on a regular basis. That also something, uh, and you and I haven't talked about that, but is that something that, 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 is, that is experienced in the Calgary Police Service? Definitely. And again, I think my experience was um, somewhat limited in that. I was very fortunate. Uh, I had comments such as in front of a supervisor when I questioned him in regards to a process, uh, a senior member sitting with him said, spread your legs and talk. I think that was sort of the the level of my experience with it. So I was very fortunate, but I did... Uh, speak with members who had been physically assaulted in a sexual manner. Um, and again, I think it's just trying to restore a, an oversight, an accountability, uh, a measure, uh, a beyond a measure, a standard of professionalism to policing uh, and moving away from sort of the old boys club. And I, and I don't mean that disparaging to many of the great men who uh, I've worked alongside of and worked with and for, but a, a small percentage of uh, people, male per, predominantly, but also female, you might be surprised, Roy, who uh, utilize their power to uh, heap abuse on members who are often competent. And, you know, it was funny in kind of trying to remember if I could, I, I laid a complaint back in 2009 with the... Um, the police association or attempted to uh, to see if it was of worth and the response back was uh, was um, you know the inspector believes there might be a perception issue and that they could handle things better but just try to uh, ask advice from them occasionally everybody likes to feel important and so it it speaks to dr. Pat's comments I think is that you know if they don't feel that uh, you're providing them that there's their need to be uh, your supervisor and you're competent and you know how to do your job, um, you might start to have issues. Yeah, well, I was just about to ask you about the leadership within the Calgary Police Service and the Calgary Police Association. And then you said something in the studio, um, uh, producer and I just sort of looked at each other when you said, the senior person said, spread your legs and talk. I was about right. to ask you about management. But if that's, if that's how m at least one person in a management position in the police service treats a respected member of the police service, and you were, became a sergeant and a detective, what happens to the people who, who don't have that, right. um, that, 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 I don't know, drive that presence that uh, you better not mess with me, um, project that, you know, that image. What happens to them on a daily basis? That's the, well, yeah, that's and the I question. Think, well, that's the reason I came forward. I think I had a very difficult uh, few years, and um, I have a strength of my, my Christian faith. I have a strong, supportive husband. Uh, who has to hear all my stories, and I had um, a social, you know, people around me in my personal life who, who could support me. When you get, and I'm senior, I was very senior, and so when you get junior members who either are um, involved in these conversations or hear the conversations, yeah. they start to believe that this is not only acceptable, but something that they better participate in, or they are then themselves ostracized and isolated, and come on, why can't you be one of the boys? Many of these guys don't want to be one of the boys anymore. They want to be professional. They want to treat their partners with respect. They want to do the work that they're passionate about. And so when I hear the studies from out of the research out of the Edmonton, that 80% you said were looking for, or weren't happy, but maybe looking for a new job, 40%. Yeah, 40%. So it's 40% of the police officers in, in Edmonton, according to the survey of the Edmonton Police Association, close to 40% of the officers have been looking for jobs out, uh, you know, away from the Edmonton Police Service, other than. Right. And these are men and women who I, I suspect if, uh, 
if you look back upon their history, would probably have said that they admired the profession when they were young and they, you know, they worked extremely hard to get to where they are. That's why you join, right? That's why you join. And the majority have joined because they want to help people. Do we make mistakes with the public? Absolutely. Uh, And we need to be held accountable for that. But overall, we have public support. We want to help people. And now they're looking for a different job because they don't get that support from the organization they work for. Now, Dr. Ferris, when uh, when when Marlene talks about younger members, junior members, hearing this kind of conversation going on, hearing an insult like "spread your legs," uh, that's just some, you know. Anyway, it's terrible. What terrible? When, when you when you when you're a junior member, hearing that, that just self perpetuates the. Uh, the dysfunctionality, doesn't it? I don't want to use buzzwords, but isn't that the case? Well, of course it is. You know, leadership culture is what drives uh, an organization. So if, you know, men and women hearing that uh, are going to do exactly what Marlene said. They're going to conform, obey, work harder, and they're likely to get engaged in derogating someone else because that's what you do. You know, the, the, the opposite to stand up uh, often results in, in damage to the people. So they very quickly learn not to do that. Have you, uh, have you dealt with, as a, as a psychologist, have you dealt with members of the Calgary Police Service or the Edmonton Police Service? I've dealt with members of um, various police services, um, you know, uh, across the country. Some um, connect with me via Skype or email, so I've got sort of a wide uh, variety of experiences in policing. Is there a common, what's the common denominator, fear, concern, help me uh, point? That, that I hear from people that come to access yeah, me? yeah. A lot of people uh, come not understanding what's happened to them. Why? Why was it me? What did I do to deserve this? Uh, how did I lose my power? Uh, because a lot of these people are, as I said, they're conscientious, they're competent. Right. Uh, they're actually usually quite assertive people. And, and one of their greatest wounds is that they feel weak and don't understand why it happened to them. And they don't also understand why it impacted them to the degree, uh, the degree of injury that it did. And, you know, the first stages in dealing with this is to help people understand they likely threatened someone with their conscientiousness and their competency. And they probably ignored it or forgave or didn't even notice it until the point where it got quite adverse and they lost power. Uh, so if I can educate and support and give some ideas about how they get their power back, if this comes early, we can often prevent a deeper injury, which uh, in, in more long-term severe cases becomes this very severe rumination and focus on justice mm-hmm. that um, ultimately for many people just ruins their lives. You know, just thinking, we're going to take a break in a second and we'll finish off the hour with you both, but... I was just thinking, if if you if you have the mindset that you're you're going to work and and you're actually the law buffer again between uh, chaos and order, and you're going to work with a mindset uh, where, where you're feeling intimidated, you're bullied, you're you're feeling um, not comfortable in your own skin because of what's going on around you in your organization that's being perpetuated by. By, uh, by by those who, who believe in it and being carried out by a, a relatively few who just sort of feed this process. You're going to work with that attitude, and you're putting on your uniform, and you're, you're getting in a police cruiser, and you're going out to interact with people on a daily basis, and you, you're going to catch the worst of situations because you're a cop. That's a terrible combination. You start with a negative frame of mind, and you go out and you, you face the, the worst that society can throw at you on any given shift. Man, that's that's tough. It is. It That's is tough. tough. But I do need to comment that most people, uh, especially in policing, go out and do their job. No, I, I don't doubt it. They're competent. I don't doubt it. What I'm saying is, it it just further complicates their own their own psychological well being. Well, and Absolutely. that's why I think it's important and critical that we have these these discussions because. Um, that was the reason uh, to become public on this, is to say you have to have an organization that takes care 
of those who take care of you. Right. And I say that with pride for the members of the Calgary Police Service because I think every day they go out and try to do their best and they're not supported. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. After 26 years as a member of the Calgary Police Service, 26 years, Marlene Hope retired as a as a detective. She'd been a sergeant. She um, She's joining me on the program today to talk about the Calgary Police Service and how she believes this service is malfunctioning and what needs to be done to bring it to what it ought to be. And I know from talking to Marlene and exchanging emails, she cares deeply, deeply about this organization. 26 years of your life. Um, Marlene, Sheila Fraser, uh, as an investigator for the Solicitor General, she's a wonderful woman. She's, uh, she's direct. She did a terrific job as Auditor General. But you said something to me or somebody did about her effectiveness is going to be limited if people don't feel comfortable talking to her. Yeah, and we had discussion um, last week, you and I, regarding that, and I think it it speaks again to the broken system. So you can have all the right people in place and you can have great investigators, you can have um, policies, but if you don't adhere to them, if you don't have a culture where people feel comfortable and confident in the system, then I don't know if she's going to get much business. And, and that doesn't speak to the lack of um, issues that are there. It speaks to the lack of um, trust from the members uh, so they won't complain. Would you, uh, we have about two minutes, would you just rem- just remind us, please, why you're doing what you're doing today and why you're speaking out? Well, Roy, like you said, I'm passionate about the police service still. I joined since I was a little girl. I always wanted to be a police officer. Uh, I loved the work. I had great experiences. I had some great supervisors, uh, male and female, and I had some very difficult times. And I think that's not uh, a story that's just mine it's repeated throughout and I think people's experiences are different you're going to have some members who I have no doubt will phone in and say they had a great experience and I'm happy for them Uh, but we want the experience to be good for everybody so that everybody who puts on that uniform has the support of the membership um, of the leadership regardless of what uh, they believe in what their needs are that they're supported and uh, and I think their change needs to be you know come to the to policing as a whole, not just the Calgary Police Service. We've had great leaders there, and we've had leaders who've failed us as well. All right. So the the message is very clear. Marlene, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for talking to us today. Um, I, I I will stay in touch with you. And uh, Dr. Ferris, thank you also for for joining us and speaking to the issue of the of bullying and uh, systemic problems. From a psychological perspective, thank you so much. Thank you, Roy. Um, so that's our hour with uh, with Marlene Hope, former detective, and before that, a sergeant with the Calgary Police Service, and what she sees as the challenges the service faces. And remember that in Edmonton, in Edmonton, they uh, <clears throat> they found that um, about eighty percent of the police officers in Edmonton, about eighty percent of the cops in Edmonton. 80%, 8 out of 10, say they're working in a culture of fear. That, according to the Police Association and a survey they did. Thank you, Marlene Hope. Thank you, Patricia Ferris. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Joe McFarland, News Director at News Talk 770 in Calgary with me. And uh, so let's, Joe, have you explain to us, please, what it is the Notley government is doing with this lawsuit against power companies, including utilities which are owned or at least partly owned by the cities of Calgary and Edmonton. What's going on? Yeah, so back in 2000, during the Ralph Klein era, uh, the power company signed essentially a deal with the province saying, you know, this is how the power buying or power purchasing is going to work in this province. And there's a clause in there uh, that, you know, depending on who you ask, is either good or bad. Now, the clause basically says that if uh, a government in the future, because this was a 20-year agreement, um, the the terms might change or the government might change. And so if the the deal becomes uh, unlucrative for the power companies or doesn't become profitable enough for the companies, they can essentially back out. And so what the province is claiming right now 
is that the the uh, power companies are trying to opt out of the deal because of the the way that some of the things that the NDP have done have made their industry basically unprofitable or or unsustainable for them, and so it's created quite an interesting uh, backlash because obviously this is a twenty year deal, and and so there's some questions. Uh, aimed towards the NDP in terms of how long did they know about the circumstance or around the uh, the things that were going to happen once they introduced the carbon levy, for example, the carbon tax. So everyone want to frame that that uh, that dollar that's going to be brought in at some point. Um, what exactly have they done to help out power companies? Um, how how long ago did they know about that versus you know did they know now or did they know 20 years ago? Um, and there's been other questions as to the ramifications of such a deal. And, and, you know, you've seen the Calgary and Edmonton Chambers of Commerce say this is a bad thing. You've seen the Mayor Nahed Ninchi in Calgary uh, lash out saying that this is a poorly thought out deal. You've got, obviously, every single one of the opposition parties of any color, the Liberals, the Alberta Party, the PCs or the Wild Rose, you know, they never agree on anything, and yet the four of them all agree that this is a bad idea. Uh, the NDP framed this as we're looking out for Albertans, and they're claiming that the the uh, power companies aren't looking out for our best interests, that they went behind closed doors with the province back in 2000 and kind of compared it to an Enron situation, which is a pretty um, pretty bold statement, I think, that a lot of people took offense to, especially uh, the people or the guys who work at NMAX and, and EPCOR in Edmonton. Um, those are city-owned utilities at the end of the day. And so if you're claiming that they were going behind closed doors, then that begs the question, were the municipal governments in on this? Uh, and if those were in on it, then all of a sudden you have to call into question the mayors of the, those cities at the time, the councils at those times, um, were were the, the residents of those two cities had the wool pulled over their eyes during those times. You know, there's some interesting ramifications that could come of this. And so a judge is going to be basically asked to uh, deliver a decision on whether or not uh, the power companies can opt out of this, these contracts. And, and depending on what happens, if they say, yeah, they can opt out, then the government is being made to look really bad, the province. Uh, and if they say, yeah, no, the power, they say, no, power companies uh, can't uh, opt out, then the power companies look really bad in this case, and yeah. and especially the city-owned ones. So yeah. some really interesting ramifications. Well, Joe, it, you know, it, it's, so, it's strange to me. I mean, I'm listening to this, and I'm thinking about other provinces doing this sort of thing, uh, because prices are going to change. We don't get the oil to market, and uh, we start closing coal-fired um, uh, energy-creating um, plants. We start to change everything. We start to head toward uh, green renewables and increased power uh, carbon taxes. This sort of thing is going to be not only in Alberta; it's going to be elsewhere. And and you have this in uh, this crazy situation where you have, uh, uh, as you say, Calgary and Edmonton, who own or at least partly own uh, utilities, are being now uh, attacked by the provincial government for backing out of contracts. Which were signed, and the and, and and they're backing out because their deals are less profitable. But why are they less profitable? Because of Alberta's increased carbon costs. So it's the province that's causing the problem. Uh, and and then the idea that a province would sue its own regulatory agency, the Alberta Utilities Commission, for unlawfully agreeing in 2000 terms, which allow termination of the so-called power purchase agreements, if a change in law renders the PP unprofitable. I think, or more unprofitable is how it reads, is just madness. And it starts me to think of this. Could all of this lead toward the situation which exists in the UK, where thousands of elderly and poor are dying annually because they cannot afford the increasing price of electricity? It's projected that by 2030, this is my British charity, by 2030, 100,000 people in the UK, and I've talked about this with Bjorn Lomborg, 100,000 people in the UK will die of, of cold, being cold, because they cannot afford electricity. And I just want to read you something from the Daily Mail. Uh, this goes back to uh, 2011, October 2011. More than 2,700 people are dying each year in England and Wales because they cannot afford to keep their homes warm, according to an official study. 
The spiraling cost of gas and electricity combined with the impact of green taxes is putting health and lives at risk, researchers found. The study concluded that green taxes on household power bills are regressive and have a disproportionate impact on poorer households. You have older people in the U.K. riding buses all day to stay warm in the winter or staying in bed all day to stay warm. And I'm just wondering if all this stuff that's going on starting now in Alberta... Um, is is eventually, or maybe not eventually, it's fairly quickly going to lead to a similar situation in this country. Well, and especially given the fact that you're looking at a, a situation where we haven't really seen a, a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to uh, to the current economic downturn that we've been, exactly. we've been facing. I mean, there, there's a lot of people that are out of jobs in Alberta. They're moving away or they're staying here, hoping that the, the light will soon be on the horizon kind of thing and, and you start to question you know those who have jobs are going to be forced to pay even more those who don't have jobs are going to be forced to pay more well if you don't have the money um, and there's a lot of question marks in terms of the eco- economic conditions now given the fact that so many uh different people are saying that even even with the the way that they're going towards green which is a, an enviable idea is it feasible right now in, in in an economic downturn can you turn the economy around on something that is unproven well, you know, uh, the answer to that question, from my perspective, is no. Two two letters, N-O. And, and I just want to bring this home to this country. And I've talked about this before, in, uh, and in, this was a story of the CTV um, ran in 2014. Uh, the winter in February. Today there are, this is Bruce Gray County, okay? Today there are concerns. Some people might need to resort to um, candles space heater and your oven to warm things because they can't afford the fuel they may need to keep their furnaces running. You have Jean McAllister's been living alone since her husband was admitted to a long-term care home last year. We suffer from Alzheimer's. Now she's getting by on one pension and old age security and money is tight. She says she can't afford to pay for both her hydro and heating in one month. And uh, the uh, Francesca Dobbin with the United Way, Bruce Gray, says 42 families are in crisis situation in Gray, Bruce counties. She said 26 have no fuel at all and there's no money to buy it. Some even have had their electricity disconnected until payment plans could be arranged through community supports like the United Way Social Services. And she says, my greatest fear is that we're going to lose somebody. Somebody's going to die because of this issue. Now, it's a bit of a step from what we've talked about that's going on with your government in Alberta suing um, the uh, power companies. It's a step. But man, um, they started with this, this concept in the UK, and that's what we talked about with seniors dying there. And then there's the story that from uh, from Ontario in 2014. I'm taking a lot of loose ends, Joe, and I'm pulling them together. Maybe they shouldn't be pulled together, but I'm doing it. But at the same time, too, is you know, let's say this thing does get caught up in in uh, litigation for a while, or let's say the province does win this, and and the the companies have to pay more down the line. Where do you think that cost is going to go to? Yeah. It's not going to be paid by the companies. It's nope. going to be passed on to the consumers. Exactly. That, and the that's consumer, the bottom line, right? And your consumers in Alberta are hurting. Everybody in Alberta is hurting. And you know when Alberta hurts, the country hurts. Yeah, it was interesting. There was a report earlier this week talking about the, the GDP numbers and how uh, the Fort McMurray wildfire really impacted uh, GDP in, in Canada as a whole. And I think that really paints a picture in terms of just how much of an economic driver Alberta still is for this province yes, and sir. how it impacts this, this country. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.